Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Mark Van Arsdale to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Mark is assistant coach at Loyola College and is also the offensive coordinator, has been around. I've known Mark for a long time, and I love talking lacrosse with this guy. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I'm fired up to have you on. Yeah, my pleasure, Jamie. Excited to talk. Awesome. All right, so as we normally do, um, let's kick it off with talking about your lacrosse journey, uh, where you kind of found the game and um, how you moved up through the ranks as a player and a coach. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, you know, got introduced to the game when my family moved to upstate New York, Geneva, New York, where Hobart College is. My dad was a longtime college administrator. He took a position there uh, when I was in elementary school. And the, the gentleman that gave me my first lacrosse stick was the head coach at Hobart at the time, Jerry Schmidt. Um, Jerry was uh, still the only guy that's ever been on the cover of Sports Illustrated uh, as a lacrosse player. Wow. Uh, and he's a, a name that I think sometimes gets forgotten, you know, as the architect of those long long tradition of Hobart lacrosse. Uh, Jerry was the coach there from the late 60s to the 70s, had been a Hopkins phenomenal guy. And, uh, you know, I think he was a great influence on Dave Urich, who was the assistant at Hobart at the time. And I really got my start going over to those Hobart lacrosse practices when I was in middle school. Uh, my brother and I, there was no real organized lacrosse for us to play. Um, but every day after school, I would walk over to, to the Hobart practice and just be a ball boy and be around the locker room and uh, Coach Schmidt, Coach Urich, and actually Coach Urich was the assistant at the time. He would give me a ride home every day <laughs> after practice. Uh, you know, I did that probably for three or four years until, you know, I was able to be be playing in, in ninth grade is really when I started playing on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, with high school JV stuff in, in Geneva, New York. Uh, following an, an older brother, my brother Guy was two years ahead of me. He had been a ball boy too, and then was playing on the team. And it just seemed once I got stuck in the, in the sport, I loved it. You know, I just couldn't get the stick out of the hand. You know, I'd always played 
uh, a lot of baseball and, and basketball up until that point. But once I, I started going to those practices and seeing what lacrosse is all about, it, it just took off. And uh, I would say that, you know, Coach Schmidt, Coach Eric, still two of the great influences uh, in my life. And I was fortunate enough to, to play for, for Coach Eric at Hobart. Uh, Coach Schmidt had, had, had moved on a, a couple of years before I got to, to college and uh, was recruited by, by Coach Eric. And I still remember him saying, you know, you're not the kind of guy that's going to make or break our program, Mark, you know, but, but we'll take you. And, uh, you know, I always appreciated his honesty and humor and, um, you know, was, was really a, a terrific players coach, great guy to play for. And, uh, you know, I had the experience of getting to play with my brother in college and, uh, you know, and BJ O'Hara, who, uh, you know, has been in the pro ranks for a bunch of years as my position coach, uh, had, had a strong influence on that as well. And uh, I'd be remiss in not mentioning my high school coach, Jack McDonald, who, who got me started in the sport with some summer league stuff. And Jack became the B team coach at Hobart, was the JV coach. So was able to be around those guys a lot and, and just continued to, you know, develop a, a love for the game. And, you know, once I got out of school, couldn't really see myself not being involved in lacrosse. And uh, I did a short time as a GA at, at, at UMass uh, for just a semester. Uh, you know, I had, had been in, coaching at, at Nazareth the first year that they had a, a lacrosse program. Scott Nelson was the head coach. It was, you know, a whole bunch of first years. It was my first coaching job. Scott was his first year as a head coach. And it was the first year for every single kid on the Nazareth team. And that was a, an interesting experience. Um, and then I just moved on and, and been very lucky to have some great mentors. A job opened back up at Hobart and went, went and coached there for uh, about four years. And and then had the opportunity to move to the University of Virginia as an assistant for Jim Adams. And, you know, I consider myself so lucky to have worked with so many outstanding, you know, yeah. coaches. When you think about the guys that are, you know, every coach I've worked for um, has either won a national championship or is in the Hall of Fame, you know, wow. um, most of them both, you know, uh, you know, Coach Eric's a Hall of Famer, multinational championships. Scott won several national championships at Nazareth. Uh, the short time with Dick Garber, a Hall of Famer at UMass. Um, back with, with Coach Urich, and then I was with Jim Adams at, at Virginia for a couple of years, and you know he's one of the all-time greats and, and probably uh, you know the finest gentleman I've met in the sport. And then I was at Virginia when Dom Stargia came down and, and took the job, uh, and a little bit worried there because I didn't really know Dom. I uh, had a, a pregnant wife had just bought a house and didn't know if I still had a, a job, but fortunately things worked out with Dom and, and stayed on there. Uh, for, for a few years before moving on to UPenn as a, a head coach for five years in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and after several years there, the opportunity to go back to, to Charlottesville and work with Dom uh, presented itself. And, it, and, you know, having lived there previously and now having a young family, it, it made a lot of sense to, to go back and, and live in, in such a great community and uh, was able to be there with Dom for 15 years. And, you know, I would say, you know, outside of the, the, the two men in my family, my dad and my brother, you know, Dom and, and Dave Eric are probably two guys that have the, the greatest influence on me in my life. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to, to be able to stay in, in, in that job with, with Dom for 15 years at, at Virginia. And then, you know, things transpired in, uh, in 2016 that, that maybe wasn't really looking for, uh, uh, wasn't looking for a new home, but when forced to find one, I was really lucky to find a landing spot at Loyola, you know, a program that I had always had a lot of respect for from the outside. You know, I, I knew Charlie to me a little bit, but not great. Uh, you know, but as I 
you know, started to, to talk to him about conversations of maybe be joining their staff and, and meeting those guys and seeing how things were done here, uh, it became a no-brainer. And I was really, really lucky to, to find a great landing spot and have been here for the last five years. Yeah. Wow. That was a heck of a, a heck of a run right there that you've been on. And uh, like you said, the people, the mentors, the people you've worked with, coached, we haven't even talked about the players yet, which I'm psyched to do, but unbelievable. I, I would like to go back a, a little bit to the Jerry Schmidt Yurk days. Um, a lot of people don't know Jerry Schmidt, but like you said, uh, he was also, he's at Hobart. He was at Princeton for a lot of years. Um, and um, what, what was it about those guys that made them such special people and coaches, both lacrosse wise and as mentors? I think from, from Jerry, he just had a great handle on the sport and, uh, and what was going to work at, at Hobart at the time, you know, he, uh, he, then maybe it was from having been a Hopkins guy when Navy was so good and Navy had converted all those defense men were football players, but Hobart in the 1970s made a living out of taking good football players and turning them into defensemen, you know, guys that, you know, they used to always say they were the DNPs, you know, guys that did not play in high school, uh, defensive backs, wide receivers, running backs, you know, people like, uh, Tom Korn, Ed Howard, you know, Tom was the, you know, became the club player of the year in the, the late seventies, you know, Ed, I think if he would have continued with the sport would have been one of the all time greats was an African-American defenseman from Buffalo had gone to Hobart to play basketball. And, but Jerry could just, you know, take those guys and he was very innovative. Uh, you know, he, he played a, a run and gun style. You know, I, I know that people talk about army riding with, with nine long sticks, you know, Hobart was doing that beforehand, getting all those athletes on the field uh, back in the days of the horn. And, and I think Jerry's philosophies really carried over to Dave. And, uh, you know, Dave was just such an unbelievable people person. Yeah. Uh, he just had a way of getting the most out of everybody. And he could make that last guy in the roster feel like he was every bit as important as the, the all American on the field. And, you know, certainly he took, you know, I think a lot of Jerry's lacrosse things, you know, I, I think most of what Dave, Dave himself was a DNP at Cortland State, you know, he never played in high school and, and, uh, but he was an assistant football coach at Hobart at the time. And he was a, a good in for Jerry to find out who the get good athletes on the football team were to, to come play. And then when Dave took over, he just, you know, maybe took it a, another step and, uh, you know, had that great run of teams in the, in the 1980s with that, the Hobart team. But, you know, I, I think from, from him, it's, it's much more the, the perspective on life and the, the sense of humor that he could deal with, with everything that um, just made him such an outstanding coach and mentor. So cool that you actually grew up there. And it, it reminds me of my childhood growing up at Brown, you know, around Dom. So whenever, ever, starting when I was about third or fourth grade, I'd roll over to the fields. I'd bring my soccer ball in the fall or my lacrosse stick in the spring and watch Brown practice. And I'd see, you know, Dom and Pete and these guys walking by my house on their way from, you know, walking from their apartments to the fields. And it's something special about growing up around it, though, isn't there? Uh, no, no question. I mean, it was just a, a really great experience and, and made the, you know, the college choice easy when you knew the people in the, in the program so well and, and yeah. who, the, who those people were. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, uh, you know, the next generation, my son, get to do the same thing, you know, yeah. at Virginia, where he was able to, to grow up around you know, some of those really good teams at, at Virginia in the 2000s and had the opportunity to play there. What did you take from Scott Nelson at Nazareth and Dick Arbor at UMass? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with, with Dick first. You know, I mentioned Coach Adams being one of the great gentlemen, but but Dick in the way that, that he treated people and, and he 
kept the game a game. You know, he, he was very, very competitive, uh, you know, but he also, you know, recognized that, you know, the, the wins and losses weren't the end of the world and, and that there was a lot more to it th than that. And even just being there in a short time uh, with him when, when UMass had, you know, at the, the time I was there, there were some really, really good players and guys like Sal Acasio and Timmy Sudan uh, were, were on that, that team. And then at Nazareth, um, you know, Scott was just a really great stickler for preparation. You know, it seemed like even though he was just a first year coach there, um, you know, there were very few situations that, that we were not going to be prepared for going into games, even though that, you know, we, we were dealing at a, a deficit on the experience side, both on the field and on the sideline. Um, I think he did a great job of, of preparing his guys for the situations that would come up and, and obviously, you know, became a, a great builder of a, a program from, from day one, you know, taking that over and having a vision for where that could go and, and taking Nazareth to its prominence in division three in the 1990s. So what years, what year did you get to UVA? I got to UVA uh, the fall of 90. So led into the spring of 1991 uh, was the first year uh, coaching there. So two years with coach Adams, 91 and 92. And then he, he uh, retired after the 92 season. And that's when, when Dom moved down. Wow. So, and so how many years were you there at Virginia with Dom before you went to Penn? Uh, I was with Dom for four years, uh, the 90 through through 96 season. And, uh, you know, saw those teams really starting to, to take off at Virginia. Had some, some outstanding offensive players, you know, probably, uh, I hate to, to get into the who was better. It's like comparing your own kids, you know, who do you like more? Um, yeah. But that attack unit that, that we had at that time is, is still, I think, probably the best one that I ever coached of Watson, Knight, and Whiteley uh, in the in the mid '90s, and they, they were just a high-flying group that was really fun to be around. I mean, people don't really realize if you didn't see them just how perfect they were together and how good they were. And like, I mean, Watson was just such a freak. Whiteley was just the one of the greatest lacrosse player feeders you could ever have, and then Doug Knight you know, just somehow figured out a way to score goals like none other. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was, they were all great in their own individual ways, but the way that they complemented each other, like you say, you know, to have, you know, a, a super cerebral X guy like Timmy uh, playing in between, you know, a, a lefty and a righty off of either wing who were both wildly athletic and super creative and, uh, you know, felt like Michael could do just about anything in any sport. And, yeah. and, and then Doug just had a toughness and a creativity about him that you know, he certainly was unorthodox. You know, he's maybe one of the few great attackmen that I've ever seen that protected his stick by moving his stick. You know, he was, he was dodging <laughs> checks. You know, so many of us are taught to, you know, keep that stick. It's in by the ear, nice and tight and all that. And Doug had it all over the place, but you try and check him and, and that's when he'd go by you. Man, those guys, those guys had the dives going like none other too, didn't they? They did. You know, that's why that, the rule got, that got banned after, you know, uh, Doug and Michael were done. It was kind of like, uh, uh, Lou Alcindor who became Kareem Jabbar and the dunk in college getting thrown away after uh, him. It was the same thing with, uh, you know, Doug and Michael, but that, that diving around was, was thrown out after they were done. So your first, year at Penn was what 97 did you say 97 yeah. yeah so what was it like to go from uh assistant coach to head coach I mean for for most of us that have done that it's always like kind of like becoming a new parent it's like you just can't prepare for it uh, uh, yes. experience I would say almost like being a new parent with 
with triplets or something. I mean, you're always trying to, to put some fire out somewhere. I, I was yeah. fairly young at the time, you know, I think 32 or 33 years old, whatever it was. Uh, um, and adjusting to uh, a city life that I had, had not been accustomed to. And then, but also, you know, like you say, just that first time head coach and, and, uh, and all the things that maybe go into being an Ivy coach that there, there's a few things beyond the athletic side that, that maybe need more attention at a, at a place like that. And so we were, um, you know, swimming upstream for, for a while. You feel like you get a handle on it after a little while, but you're right. I think that first year as, as being a head coach um, is a lot of eye-opening experiences. Yeah. And so what, what are some of the things you remember learning that was so different for you? I, I think the big one was you go from, you know, really being the guy that's, that's kind of making the suggestions but at the end of the day, you go up, put your head on a pillow and, and that's it, you know, but now you're the guy that has to, to make the decisions, you know, and, and you, uh, and certainly learned a lot about delegation, you know, early on, probably trying to do, do too much yourself. Uh, it was also at a time when staffing wise, things were a little bit different where we, you know, just had one full-time assistant and then our second assistant was paid maybe $4,000 for the, for the year. So it was part-time. And so there, there were more things that you were doing. There, there was no such thing as director of ops and, and, and all yeah. those. So um, you did have to learn to, to dig out, delegate a little bit. Uh, yeah, there was a director of ops and it was an assistant coach. We've all been a director of ops. Long right, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what, um, how was it, how did you play? How did you decide when you went from Virginia where you guys were really building, you know, you didn't, you didn't, win that championship while you were there the first Don didn't win his first one with you. It was a couple of years away, but you guys were building towards this with like uh, just a remarkable amount of athleticism and talent on both sides of the ball. And just like you said, this high flying sort of way of playing. And then you also, you know, take a job at Penn where it's like, okay, we don't have the same talent yet. Um, how did you sort of attack that? And how did you play at Penn? Uh, you know, we, we still wanted to, you know, play relatively fast uh, but you know like you said we were not going to be able to go up and down the field athletically the way that you were at Virginia with some of the athletes that Virginia had in the middle of the field uh, was blessed with some pretty good attackmen at Penn uh, you know walked into a, a situation that first year with there was a ex-attackman by the name of John Cusson from Loyola who was a was a good little feeder and John Ward was a big strong attackman from from Wilton Connecticut and had had Peter Janney who became one of the all-time leading scorers at Penn as a as a good right-handed shooter. So we could be still somewhat uh, attack focused uh, yeah. and, and approach it that way. Um, defensively, we weren't going to get out and chase people uh, the same way that, that, that we had at, at, at Virginia, you know, again, not having quite the same athletes and, and uh, you know, really dealing with a, a, a program that, you know, I think had won one Ivy game in the last four years when it got in there. So, so we weren't uh, completely stocked and, uh, you know, so we needed to take our time. So there was a little bit of adjustment in the, as to how you're going to play. Um, but I still, and I've always been probably more of an attack oriented guy that's coming from being an attackman, I think, and, uh, uh, and, and liking to do that. So we, we continued to, to attack that way, but, but probably in a little bit slower fashion. I, I love the fact that you've, and have always really uh, admired the, your attack focused mentality because what happened over the course of time was everybody just started dodging short sticks all the time. And I think it was by, by, you know, obviously through recruiting, if you have like the best attackman in the country, you can give them the ball. But I, but I think there's something to giving your attack the ball anyway, 
that you were that you believed and I think it, it it helped your offenses can you talk a little bit about that yeah well I mean the couple things there one I've, I've always felt that the best way to break down a, a defense is if you can attack long sticks behind the goal um you know I think the the unique thing to lacrosse is, is that area behind the cage and if you're not using that you're, you're really shrinking the amount of space the defense has to guard and if you can attack you know most of Defensive coaches, you talk to them, you know, the first thing that they're going to tell their, their defense is they don't want to have to slide to their long poles. You know, they don't want to have to slide to their close defensemen. Right. So if you can put them in a position where they have to react to their defensemen behind the, the goal, um, you know, one, you, you, you're, you're compromising the integrity of what they'd like to keep doing. Um, you're also taking, if you can attack a long stick, you're taking a long stick out of the team defense. Um, you know, I think, you know, I hear you talk about, you know, the, the, the two man game, the way that you go behind and you reduce the numbers in front of the cage sometimes or uh, off the wing. It's, it's the same thing. If I can attack a long stick behind the goal, you know, now there's there's two short sticks involved in the team defense and the sliding and the, and the recovering and all that. And I think that that helps. The other piece is, uh, uh, you know, certainly like many others will attack short sticks when we feel like we, we have the opportunity to do so, or it's a good matchup and you, you want to be uh, diverse enough to, to attack from different places. But I was never that comfortable putting the, the ball or the decision-making or the keys to the offense in the hands of my fifth and sixth best players. Yeah. Uh, and that's who were getting the short sticks, you know? And so, uh, and like you said, I think some of it is a function of recruiting. You know, if you, you have Tim Whiteley and Mike Watson or Connor Gill or Matt Ward or Ben Rubior or, some combination of a couple of them, you're very lucky and, and you're going to put the ball in their stick. You know, we, you mentioned, we'd talk about Pat a little bit later, but with, with Pat Spencer, you know, the, the rule became if, if you're not able to shake hands with a goalie with your toes in the crease, the ball has to touch Pat's stick every possession, you know, uh, you, know you just, it just doesn't make sense not to, to give him the ball. And don't you think that by just continuing to have the mentality of going against polls that, that you can get pretty good at it. And it's maybe, I don't know, people talk about burying the pole all the time. I mean, honestly, I think the more you watch it, you know, poles, poles can struggle against physicality when you get in close and they make mistakes too. And, and all of a sudden you can, it really can open stuff up, even though it sort of seems like it's going to be a worse matchup for you at times. No, I ab absolutely uh, agree with that. And, you know, that idea of burying the pole, you know, you, you see that with, uh, you know, like in the camp situation where kids haven't played together. Oh, you, you got the pole. You, you go on the crease right now. Right. Well, now, now you're putting him in the center of the defense, you know, and, and he's able to, to, to be the slide guy. And the other piece of that that you find at, at the college level is a lot of long stick middies are not great individual defenders. You know, they're great off the ground. You know, they handle the ball well. In, and especially in today's world, you know, we all want guys that can get out and handle the ball and transition as, as the long stick middy. Um, but, but, I think you make a mistake sometimes by not uh, go, going after that guy uh, and, and, and challenging him. Like you say, I think you can become adept at dodging. And again, some of that, I think a lot of us, I've said this to you before, are a product of our environment. You know, when, when I'm playing in college, there's six long sticks on the field. You know, so there was no attack to short stick. Everybody had to figure out how to dodge a pole or you weren't going to be able to dodge. True. So you get back to Virginia for the what, the O2 season? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, and you guys won it for Dom's second championship and your first in 03. In 03, correct. Yeah. You know, 02, we had lost to uh to Syracuse in a in a 
great semifinal game. They ended up winning the, the championship over Princeton. We lost to them at Rutgers in a, in a double overtime game. Um, we actually, uh, it was the old rule where there was the dotted line on the, on the side of the box. And yeah. we actually had a, a player kind of tiptoeing around there in the last, last minute and whether he was out of the box or in the box or not, we had, we had the lead with about 45 seconds to go and, and uh, get called for stepping out. They go down and score and they win the game in overtime. But then the 03 team uh, came back led by another Rhode Islander, you know, Chris. Brown, baby. Yeah. And uh, you know, Chris was one of the great leaders that have been around uh, in, in the sport and, and just kind of helped will that team, a very talented team. Yeah. Uh, but Chris uh, Rotelli we're referring to what, what made Chris great? Uh, one was that he had a, uh, uh, an engine that never stopped. You know, Chris could play on the extra man, play in the first midfield, play in the wings of faceoffs, stay out on defense. And it just seemed like he could go and go and go for an entire game. And, uh, you know, that year he was, he was playing, you know, probably 75% of the game as a midfielder. And that, that was one of the things that, that great conditioning and also, but just that will that he had. And then he was a, a, a very good shooter or at least had range as a shooter. And I think he became uh, more of a complete offensive player as his time went on. I think early in his career, he was, you know, more a 28 and three guy. And then his senior year, he's 25 and 25 and, and almost like a, a point midfielder, you know, uh, yeah. able to run your offense with, with Chris there. Yeah, it was amazing what he was able to do. He's got a great thing going out in NorCal. I run into him every now, every now and then. Um, let's uh, fast forward to 06, one of the most special teams you probably ever coached. Yeah, it, it was uh, – you had a lot of toys to play with in that offensive group. You know, when you, when you go into a game feeling like at most spots you have the, the matchup advantage, you know. To me, that started with Kyle Dixon um, in, in the midfield in that we just felt like we could put the ball in Kyle's stick outside the top of the box. And it didn't matter. Again, the idea of attacking the pole, he, he was going to get the pole, but we also felt like there wasn't a pole that could stop him. And uh, you know, that, that would just get you started. And then he had that ability to pass off the dodge to so many different places. And then you had guys that could, could handle it. And, you know, some complimentary players on, on that midfield, you know, Drew Thompson was a terrific midi that I think gets forgotten a lot. It was a second team all American that year, but Drew yeah. was a, was a good initiator himself too and played with his head up another 20 assist guy in the midfield and then the third guy was you know even though he was a midi he was more of the crease attackman on that group you know matt yeah. Pasquet, who you know, went on to be mvp of the mll and uh, and matt was just really good at playing off everybody else and had a had a knack for catch and release and uh, you know scored almost 50 goals as a midi and then you had an attack unit of, of matt ward ben rubio and danny gladding you know different stages in their career there but you know Matt wins the Tawaraton that year and you know Ben becomes a two-time Tawaraton finalist Danny's a Tawaraton finalist at one time so you just had a lot of different weapons uh that, that you could use and we were we were pretty good at the at the back end on, on that team too you know Kip Turner and a goal and I always thought Kip never got the credit for for how good he was um both as a stopper and a guy that that could initiate you know, the fast break and Mike Culver was defenseman of that year that year. Mike Timms was an imposing presence in the, the midfield. You know, had a really good set of a short stick, the middies with, with uh, Will Barrow and JJ Morrissey. And so that, that, it was a, a complete team up and down the field. And, uh, and the other thing that they did was they brought it every day, you know, that it wasn't just that they were, were talented, that team practiced 
um, at a pace that was was remarkable and you know consistently all the time you just a really good senior leadership group that made sure that nothing was getting in the way of lacrosse and and as a result they played pretty consistently throughout that year I mean there, there was one game I thought that that was in doubt um, it was the Princeton game where Grant Hewitt played out of his mind and had maybe 23 or 24 saves in a I think it was a 7-6 or 8-7 win for Virginia. Um, but other than that, there, there really wasn't a game where you, you walked into the fourth quarter not knowing what the outcome was. Yeah, that was an, really an amazing team. Um, fast forward to 2011, you guys win kind of an unlikely championship. How's it going, everybody? Jamie here. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the content in my Philacrosophy podcast, my Inside the Eight podcasts, or my A Lacrosse Weekend blogs, I would encourage you to check out the store at jamefreesports.com. I've created awesome content for coaches, players, and parents in both men's and women's lacrosse. For coaches, the Coaches Training Program. It's, it's a combination of cutting edge and practical. We have Division I men's and women's coaches all the way down to high school, JV, and youth. For players, I've created JM3 Player Academies, which are designed to teach every variation of every skill for boys and girls across. And for parents, I've created JM3 Recruiting Portal, where I've taken all of the content from my blogs, my podcasts, from webinars and other interviews, and pooled all of this information in one place where parents can get access to incredible content and insights from the very coaches that you're hoping to play for. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Yeah, that was that was a, a, a different way. You know, we, we you know, we're supposedly going to have a, a really strong group coming back in, in 2011, uh, you know, and and it was a recruiting class that was extremely strong. That 2011 group, that, that was the fourth final four in a row uh, for that team. Uh, but during the 11 season, we had, you know, and you can even take it back a year before where we had the, you know, the, the, the tragedy that happened in 2010 um, with the the, the murder of Yardley Love and, and the effects that, that could have on, on a group. And then moving on into, you know, 2011, where we, uh, where we end up dismissing a couple guys from the team, you know, Shamel and Mel Bratton, who were, uh, uh, you know, not uncomplicated characters. And, and by that, I mean, it, it wasn't always all bad. I mean, with those two, they, they, they could be, um, you know, the highlight of your practice in terms of, how good of teammates they could be on certain days, but at, at times it, it just went the wrong way. And, and for whatever reason, it was best for that team to dissociate with a couple guys. But at the end of the year, uh, we had, you know, from what was expected at the beginning, had probably underperformed throughout that season. And then uh, you get to the, the ACC tournament, we drop a game to, to Duke by a lot. I mean, I don't know if it was 19-10 or 18-10, and, and, and we're, we're kind of limping into the, into the last regular season game in the playoffs. And that's when uh, uh, that, that group just came together and we've revamped things a little bit, you know, earlier in the year, um, Matt Lovejoy, who had been our top defenseman uh, had gone out with a shoulder injury. And it was the week before we were playing North Carolina and uh, Carolina at the time had Billy Bitter. And we were like, we don't have anybody to cover Billy Bitter. <laughs> you know, how, how, the, how the heck are we going to play these guys? And, and Dom, as you know, had been a, man-to-man guy almost exclusively uh, for for his career and we implemented a zone uh, and yeah. kind of caught Carolina off guard beat them by a goal um, you know dur during the regular season and and then 
that zone became a regular staple of what we were doing. And then, and then we also, as we shifted our personnel around at the offensive end, became much more of a, an invert two man game team with the, you know, that revolved around steel Stanwick, uh, you know, which is a, a good, good center point to start with, you know, you know smarter guys, you, you could find great two handed player. And, and also at the same time, a really selfless uh, leader. And, you know, that, that team just sort of came together and, and played its best lacrosse at the end with a, you know, a, you know, kind of a come from behind win over Bucknell in the first round, you know, I, I was on that game, Mark. I did that. Me and uh, Joe Beninati were up in the booth. Right. And that, that was kind of an, uh, an unlikely comeback, you know, to, 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 and I think that really fueled us and made it even a couple personnel changes off of that and beat a very good Cornell team led by Rob Pinnell in the quarterfinals. Um, and then took on Denver in the, in the semis and, you know, played Denver without our, our without Colin Briggs as our, who had yeah. become our, our leading midfielder. Um, and, Again, that team just exploded early in that game, which I think helped us a lot because we were able to rest a lot of guys uh, in the fourth quarter of that game and then get Colin back on Monday to, to play a really good Maryland team in the, in the championship game. Uh, and it was you know, probably the reverse in terms of style. You know, we were a, a remarkably slow-paced team at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think those Monday games, especially before the shot clock be, on Memorial Day, became very slow games anyway. Because you know, mm-hmm. guys were wound, you know, were were pretty worn out from playing on Saturday, and yep. and usually it, it's not a great game. And I would tell you, it was a great game for us, the Virginia Maryland final. Uh, you know, recently had cause to go back and watch it, and it is a a hard game to watch um, now. It, it just that it's a in terms of a from a pure lacrosse standpoint. I think we got called for a stall every possession in the last twenty minutes of that game, and. <laughs> You know, you end up winning nine seven, and uh, you know, but, but a, a great ending for for a team. But it was a group that had come together, and you were dealing with all kinds of different issues besides the stuff off the field. You know, Steele had had a a really severe foot injury, so that you know, from about mid season on, he only practiced on Fridays and played on Saturday, and then sat out the the rest of the week, uh, and then just would you know do the walkthrough on Friday and play the game on Saturday and spend the rest of the week in the training room. But yeah, he, he was phenomenal. That's for sure. He, 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 he just was able to put the kind of put the team on his back yeah. uh, in so many ways, you know, I mean, there was a lot of good players on that team that made a lot of plays, but, but, you know, in that Bucknell game, he took over. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think an unsung hero on that team was Cockerton. Oh, without a doubt. You know, I, I think Mark, you know, coming on gave us another initiator and you know, he played more as a, a midfielder that year. He did, um, you know, through the through the playoffs, but used them a lot off the wing and in the invert and and in the you know the, the playoff run. He he had a fair amount of points, but he also was was maybe getting a lot of hockey assists. You know, where yeah. he set somebody up off the dodge and find Steele or Nick O'Reilly at X, and they they'd find the open man. I mean, that kid was an unbelievable dodger, and he was just able to like great shooter too. Yeah, I just remember him kind of like just posting up on his wing on on what I would call the midfield island, and just just wreaking havoc. Yeah, you know, in the classic case of the the one handed guy that could go either way. You know, he could he, <laughs> yeah. he he could get the top side on you. You know, even if you overplayed his his left hand, he could find it. But if you overplayed it too much, you know, then he was going to pull that face dodge and get underneath and protect his stick and 
just be a great crafty finisher. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's turn the page so that your last year at Virginia was 2016. And that was also a final four appearance for Loyola and with a freshman Pat Spencer that like literally just took the, the world by storm, a classic sort of late recruit. And then you came in with them uh, for 2017, 18 and 19 with Pat Spencer. What was it like going from, first of all, what was it like to go from Virginia to, to Loyola and how much did you change kind of the way you, you coach or how much did it say the same? Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was the same. you know, I think Loyola had made a decision um, right before they won the national championship in 2012 to really open up and, and, and play a, a faster style, you know, relied a lot on, on outstanding defensive midfield group uh, that, that could get up and down the field. 2012 team with Scott Ratliff and, and uh, Josh Hawkins and Pat Lacone um, was, was able to, to really be a good team in transition. So came into a group that we were able to play fast. And, and, you know, one of the nice things about coming in with a Pat Spencer was, you know, one of the things we'd always had at Virginia or often had at Virginia was an outstanding kind of ex quarterback. Uh, so we'd be walking into that situation. I know in, in talking to Charlie, he liked the idea that I'd worked with guys like Steele before, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, and, and coming in to, to be able to work with Pat and, but that first year, you know, a team that was a fairly veteran team in 2017 at Loyola um, didn't want to change a ton for them. I thought it'd be a lot easier for, for me as one person who does this full time to learn what they were doing yeah. and, and try and maybe, maybe make little tweaks here or there, but not overhaul the whole thing. Uh, since we had, you know, Romar Dennis, Brian Sherlock, senior middies that were lead players. Zach Sirico was the, the second attackman was another senior you know, you had Pat coming back. So, and they had obviously tremendous success the year before. And so both in terms of philosophy of wanting to play fast with the, the you know, going from D to O or, or off the face off, you want to keep that going. And then even in, in some of the sets that we ran, kept it uh, fairly similar to what had been done, you know, and obviously with Pat, you, you have a, a great starting piece. And, you know, I was actually on the field during Pat's first, college game um you know but i was on on the other sideline yeah and uh first two plays of the game very first one he uh he turns the corner and sticks one on on tanner scales who was a very good defenseman at virginia colorado yeah. guy and uh, uh and then the second play they come down and he he you know splits it x and goes to his left and feeds somebody on the back pipe for a goal and uh you're like holy cow you know we we, we heard this kid was pretty good but we didn't didn't really know him that well and uh but by the end of that game you know Loyola had won fairly convincingly over Virginia uh in the season opener and walking off the field I'm thinking these are two pretty good college lacrosse teams out there and there is no doubt that by far the best player in the field is a freshman you know wow. playing in his first game I mean it was it was that evident that early I think with with Pat what makes Pat so great in your opinion <laughs> Uh, it's a combination of a lot of things, you know, and, uh, you know, going back to that idea of you don't like to compare your kids. Uh, um, I have no problem saying Pat is clearly the best player I've ever coached, you know, and, and I honestly don't think it's wow. even close. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's because he combines so many of those great traits of some of those, those other phenomenal players that, that a head coach, you know, but you start out at, you know, six foot three, 200 pounds and really quick, you know, that, that's a, that, that's, those are some, some really good physical attributes to begin with. 
Um, but then he had the, the skill set, you know, the, the two handedness that, that, that Pat had was a lot like steel in that regard, you know, size and quickness, kind of like Kyle Dixon, you know, and, and the control of his body that way. Uh, but then, you know, he had that, that IQ as well, you know, like, I mean, he could see the game. I mean, you talk about, you know, somebody that just can slow it down, play at his own pace, doesn't have to be in a rush um, and, and see what's going on. Uh, he had a remarkable lacrosse IQ. And then you, you add that competitiveness, talk about Rotelli's engine burning hot, you know, Pat, you know, maybe not the greatest guy in, in, uh, in skeleton stick work drills. Um, you know, that, that maybe didn't get his, get his, his, uh, his edge going too much, but as soon as you turned it into anything competitive, you know, even a one-on-one ground ball, you know, a two-on-two drill to the goal, or you're, you're playing for points and four-on-fours, his competitiveness is off the charts. And, uh, you know, so you combine all those things together and, uh, and, and you've got a, a really, really special player. That was how quick and how fast? Um, really, really quick first step, you know, uh, um, and over 80 to 100 yards, he's the fastest guy on our team. I mean, he was, he's really fast when he opens it up. You know, you don't always see that because he seems like he's so under control on the field. You know, but if he's in a situation where he has to, to really open it up, um, he, he can cover that ground. And, and I think you see that, that, that he was able to survive in the Big Ten as a guard. Um, you know, yeah. again, you, you're dealing with some lightning quickness out there. And he certainly wasn't one of the quicker, quicker guards in the, in the Big Ten at his, at his size. I think he was, you know, a lot heavier than most basketball players at six foot three. But, but even the fact that he could survive out on that court speaks to, some of his athletic ability. He did a lot more than survive, you know, but, but he had really good quickness. You know, I, I'd say top end quickness for a lacrosse player and, and really high end speed. I think um, one of the amazing things is that he has all the speed and quickness. And yet you also talk about like how under control and it's like, you could not speed that guy up. And it's interesting because everybody in recruiting is always talking about like, can you run by somebody? But if you watch you know, uh, a Pat Spencer highlight video, which I, I use for the, my, uh, the Jan for athletes I work with. I always watch this video. I told you about the bracelets that I want to, I want to make this say WWPST, which is what would Pat Spencer do? Because he wouldn't run full speed by people when he saw a whole defense looking at him ready to slide. Cause he, he wanted to control them yet. You know, one play I remember against Penn state in the quarters, every Penn state guy had his back to him. They were all like, they were clearly not going to slide. And he just ran right by his guy with all the speed in the world. And, you know, how do you, how did you work with him on slowing it down or was it something he just did? A lot of that was, was just Pat himself, you know? Uh, and I think a lot of it may come from the basketball background too, but then there was, was the idea that, you know, the defenses were so focused on him that if, most of the time, most of the time people weren't playing the way that, that, that Penn State did in that game where they were kind of locked on to everybody and wanted to make Pat into a, a Dodger and a goal scorer, um, yep. you know, which he was certainly capable of by that time. Um, you know, but a lot of times defense so focused on him that, that if he ran by his guy right away, you know, that next slide was going to be on him in, in no time. And then the ball was going to be out of his stick. And, and I would rather have the ball in Pat Spencer's stick playing six on six then have the ball in anybody else's stick playing five on four. Um, 
you know, so um, he was able to manipulate defenses by slowing himself down. And, and you just talk, I mean, occasionally he did need to go by somebody. And then that's something actually yeah. probably needed to, to get him to do that a little bit more than the reverse, just to, to set some of the other things up, you know. It was, um, it's pretty amazing to watch him because he, it's like the way so many people think about things is you got to run by your guy, but he's, he's attacking the whole defense. So he just knows that, you know, everybody's going to be kind of like, you know, looking at him. And if he can get everybody to look at him and he can get close enough, he's going to either be able to feed it because they're all looking at him or they're not really coming while they're looking at him. And then next thing you know, he's getting a shot off. And it was also amazing that even though he could soak physicality because he's a big guy, but I noticed that most of the defensemen were not beating the living crap out of him because they, I think they knew that if they did and they took a big swing, he would beat them immediately. And they almost had to just sit there and he, and he wasn't even getting beaten up as badly as you would think he would sort of sit there and just look. I mean, if you look at the Syracuse, the, the Syracuse game, the, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the Penn State game, um, and uh, what was the one right before that? It was just a, a great example. Army, even Army, like it wasn't a physical beating. Now, I'm sure he took his share of beatings, but I guess my point is when you stick your body in there and you're that close and you're that good of a feeder with your head up, it really puts a defense in a tough spot. Yeah, and you haven't seen a lot of guys able to. I mean, the one guy that I, I thought played like that, you know, going way back to uh, you know, my playing, Timmy Nelson was a, was a guy oh, yeah. about six foot five at Syracuse, you know, that, you know, had the assist record for a lot of years before I think Lyle came along, but, um, you know, Timmy would kind of back his way in slowly and just be up on that corner and, and, and see through the defense and be able to pick people out. And you know, he wasn't able to go, you know, he wasn't nearly as quick as Pat and wasn't as two handed, right. Um, but, but similar in, in that regard, you're right, Pat, you know, and with us off the ball, you would think, you know, we're going to devise all these, different cutting systems or things to, to get ready for, you know, Pat's ability to be a feeder. Um, but in, in talking it over with him and, and designing some of the offensive stuff for when he'd get to that corner, he, he really liked to know where everybody was going to be and just wanted them to be spaced properly and, and basically sitting still and, and then maybe be a counter puncher if the defense react, but he, he figured I'm going to see where the slide comes from. And that's where, I'm going to be able to get the ball to that guy and we don't need to have a lot of motion where somebody's going to be bumping into somebody else. And one guy's going to be able to play two off the ball. Let's just get them spaced right. And, uh, and, and then we can react accordingly. And, and for him, it was wherever the slide came from. That's where I can deliver the ball or that second slide gets to the crease. I can throw the through ball or if the slide never comes, just keep going to the goal. Yeah. I feel, I feel like Pat was like a King, of baiting his man and baiting the defense. And I, I'd never really thought about this until having w watched a bunch of film on him recently, but like he would just know if somebody wanted to slide, he'd kind of inside roll and dangle his stick on like a ex exaggerated rocker and just draw slides and draw checks. And, you know, he kind of on that, on that Penn state move I was referencing, he kind of held his stick out with his left hand and swam right over the top. And I just feel like he was a master of manipulation. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And then, you know, we'd all love to say we have, have some, uh, some great input on that. But I think a lot of that is just, just Pat, you know, figuring these things out and, 
And sometimes with a, with a great player, one of the things I've learned is, is you let them play. <laughs> you, you don't, don't try and overdo how much you're going to, going to tell Pat Spencer what he needs to do. So obviously his bat, basketball background had a huge impact on his lacrosse. Can you describe how you sort of see that? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the simplest is, you know, you're used to, you know, especially for the, the point guard and then your ex attackman, uh, you know, you're playing with your head up, seeing, seeing things all the time. Uh, I think, think that is, is an important piece. I think he, you know, he would work on his different basketball moves, whether the crossover would be a, you know, a, a quick little split and, and step back. And, and so he, he would adopt some of the same moves from, from the sport. But I think part of it too was, you know, in, in basketball, he wasn't always going to blow by people, uh, you know, and, and, and go and that, that he had to figure out ways that, that he could, you know, kind of weighed his way in much like he did at, at Northwestern this, this past year. And, uh, you know, he wasn't blowing by those guards, but he was getting to the basket by being physical and, and sort of taking his time and, and, and getting in there. And he did the same thing on the, on the lacrosse field. But I, I think that idea of, of playing with your head up, having to see spacing where guys are moving off the ball and, and those things, I, I think that really carried over well to, to why he developed such a strong lacrosse IQ. And, and I still, you know, feel like basketball by far is the, you know, the, the best non-lacrosse sport to play to help, help lacrosse players if they can play it at a pretty high level. I mean, it, unfortunately now, you know, we don't see a lot, of, a lot of high school lacrosse players being high school basketball players. Right. Uh, now that sports are so year round and, and it's tough for a guy to, to play basketball at a high enough level that I think it's really gonna help their lacrosse. You know, but, but Pat was certainly an example of that, but I think Steel Stanwick was an example of that. Um, you know, we had a guy, Billy Gladding at, at Virginia years ago was another example of an outstanding basketball player that, and, and for him, it became more of a, an off ball help, you know, that he became a, a great cutter and, and mover without the ball. I think largely based on his basketball skill. Yeah, totally. The hesitations are what I, you know, one of the things that Pat Spencer was just so incredible at, I mean, his hesitations and his sense for when to do that, um, was definitely a basketball's trait. No question. You know, you mentioned, you made a point where you say like, you know, a lot of kids can't play high enough basketball, high enough end basketball to have it translate. And I know what you mean because you really got to commit to basketball. Usually, you know, you got to be basketball first and then maybe be a lacrosse player if you really want to play at that level. But I would also argue that pickup basketball is about as good as it gets for lacrosse too. And I'm sure you grew up playing a lot of pickup over your years of coaching I know that playing pickup hoops for me was massive. I was never that good of a basketball player, but I'll tell you what, I learned things from playing. And I, I think that's, we've talked a little bit about that, but it's, it's lost on our, you know, on our culture right now for kids to play pickup sports. And honestly, if you want to like learn how to hesitate and make plays like Pat Spencer, the best way to do it is to probably to go play some pickup hoops. I would agree. You know, other than, than playing, playing lacrosse, you know, going and playing pickup basketball is going, going to help guys. And, and you're going to learn things playing in those pickup things that you're just not going to get taught. I mean, there, there's a, a lot of, a lot of reasons why, you know, deliberate practice under a coach's supervision can help guys improve. Uh, but there are some things that you're just not going to drill. You're not, it's really hard to drill some of those hesitation moves, you know, without a, a defender on you and, 
and at the same time, while you're, you're doing the move, can I be focused on the play that's going on off the ball? I mean, that, that's the real piece. I mean, most, most kids, you know, if you drill them enough, that they, they can do the skeleton footwork and the dodges and those kinds of things. And, and I do think it's important to do some of that, you know, but the, the, what separates the really good ones are the ones that can do that while they're making the decisions, seeing what's going on in the field. And that's where, you know, things like pick up basketball or, you know, three on three lacrosse or whatever are, are ways that guys can help improve themselves, you know, without really thinking that they're practicing. How much, how do you think Pat Spencer would do if he played in the NLL? The NLL. Um, I wonder if he'd be a transition guy in, in that more than, a, you know, cause the one thing and, and Pat became much better at it. Uh, I think later in his career, simply by, by focusing on it. But if there was a, a, a part of his game that wasn't an, a super, super strength early on when I had it was his finishing the ball around the cage was the, the precise, um, you know, finishing. And now he has the capability. I think if he really set his mind to it, to, to, to get there, but I think that would be one of the areas where, you know, he might not be as good as some of the real elite scorers uh, in that league that have been playing all the time. But I also think he would be tremendous in terms of playing those two man games and, totally. and, and, and making those, those decisions. So I, I think he'd, he'd probably be somebody that would go 20 and 95, you know, <laughs> yeah, he would, especially when you get, you get hockey assist count as a point. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, speaking of Canadians, um, you know, you've coached a fair amount of them over the years. Um, but where's your sort of, where, where has your spectrum of, of two-man game and Canadian style of play, how has that evolved over the course of time for you? Yeah, I would say, you know, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but, uh, you know, early on, again, product of the environment that I, that I came out of was very much the, the fundamental two-handed turn to the outside, you know, try and, and get that offhand as, as strong as you can with the, with, with the weak hand. And, and, you know, as you've seen some of the, the Canadian influence come in, um, you know, I wouldn't say I've gone 180 on that, but I would say that that you're very open to guys that can make the play without having to be be two handed, you know, and and the two man game, I think, has really uh, become a, a big part of, of what we're doing on the field. You know, it's, it's like we alluded to before about, you know, being able to attack a, a pole below the goal line extended, I think can compromise the defense. Well, if you can take two guys. Uh, let alone that you cause the confusion and, and you can get something free on the ball in a two-man game, but you're also taking another one of the defenders out of the mix, you know? And so now you've got the, 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 the four on off ball instead of five off ball, and it's a lot more space for that defense to cover. And I, and I think that is another area where it becomes really effective. And it, it's even taken to the effect, you know, you talk about the Canadian influence playing five on five. Um, we do a lot of, of sort of hanging a guy up, you know, and, and, and leaving a D midi on the field and dragging his, the, the offensive midi that wants to get out of the game with him, you know, up out of the play and then just get into the five on five. And now, now if you play a two man game in the five on five, you know, now you've really opened up the field and it's only, you know, if they have to slide, it's, it's a three on two off the ball in a lot of space. And, uh, you know, so, uh, I think it's become much, much more part of the game, um, you know, for, for the teams that, 
that, that I work with. And you'll, you'll see in the last few years, we've, we've done a lot of that. I mean, that was a big staple for us, even with, with Pat. You know, Pat could do so much by himself. Um, but if you just add that little extra piece of, of, of the two man, whether he's the one picking, you know, he's being shut off and you, you, you let him be the, the, the picker, uh, his guy can be very reluctant to help out or to, to show or to chip that, that yep. guy. And so you, you get a clean run off of him um, or you get his man goes and helps. And now you're, you're able to get the ball and pat stick a little bit and he can play, play that way. So, you know, even with the very best players, I think that the two man game can just enhance w- what they're doing. No doubt. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about as far as two man game is, you know, of course, if you can get a shorty on Pat Spencer, that's great. Although I would argue you're better off not <laughs> just give him a poll. Cause you know, it's like the, the, all the advantages you referred to before, he, he can pretty much draw slides against the pole. But I think a lot of two-man game is, is really the addition by subtraction. And instead of turning it into a new ISO opportunity, playing out of it as a two-man game, whether it's long picking for short or short picking for long. Um, and um, it's just so interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this with box lacrosse too, is that you know, if the defense goes under or if they switch, it creates almost a little pocket of space that the, mm-hmm. that a feeder can sit in. And if you're kind of near the hashes and you're sitting in the pocket and now let's say you got some backside actions going on, um, it's similar to kind of look what Penn State and even Virginia was doing a little bit last year um, with sort of two-man side, three-man side, really a, a real box across influence where instead of dodging hard with speed off of picks, it's slowing down and and sort of sitting behind that, sitting in that pocket and really uh, trying to see how they're playing you. And I was curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you watch what Penn State was doing and it's it's pretty incredible, the stuff that, that, that they've got going. And, and so if you can com- combine, you know, maybe some of those two-man games with, you know, the two-man game off the ball, which has always been a, been a right. part. I mean, that was, that was much more uh, a, a part of the game, uh, I think, years ago, you know, where, where the, that two man inside stuff, um, survival drill to free people up picks, repicks, all those kinds of things. But if you can combine that with the, the stuff on the ball, uh, I, I think it does free a lot of things. And, and Penn state's a, a perfect example of that. I mean, some of it is, you know, they had a guy that could, could find them, uh, and, and guys yeah. that could catch, you know, I mean, I think that that's, that, that's the other, the other skill that I think, um, you know, still hasn't quite caught up all the way is, is catching the ball off those hard feeds, you know, and, and it's another piece that, you know, you mentioned the Canadians. That's one thing that, I, you know, we all talk about their ability to finish in tight, but I think a big part of that finishing is catching For sure. and being able to catch with a lot of pressure around you and catching balls that aren't always thrown from the, the perfect angle or the easy to catch ball. Right. And catching in traffic. A- absolutely. I mean, I, honestly, the late great Dave Huntley always said, you know, Canadians aren't better shooters than Americans. They're just better at catching it. I, I would attribute a lot of that to, to, to that. Yeah. So now, now you, you know, the fact that you can catch the ball six yards out with people all over you, you've got a chance to finish that ball that, that a lot of other kids just aren't going to do, you know, and uh, it, it stri- strikes back to, you know, when I was a kid in the sport and don't mean to bore with the old stories, but there was a book that came out called Star Sticks that was written by all the star players at the time. They, they would write a chapter on their own position play. You know, uh, Mike French had a chapter. Mike Waldvogel had a chapter. Dom had a chapter. It was these guys from the, the, the 70s largely. And uh, 
and one of the the things that was in there was a player from Princeton, Dave Tickner, talked about how once the catching skills caught up to the passing skills, you know, the offenses would just really, really explode. And I, I think it's come somewhat. I mean, the stick evolution has definitely helped with catching the ball. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure it's all the way there yet. And it, if guys can develop into better catchers, I think they will become better shooters. No doubt. I, I, I think I told you um... – I play a ton of pickup games with small nets and tennis balls, whether sometimes they're, you know, the classic three by, which is like a three on two all time. But a lot of times we play pairs, you know, kind of like a four on four plus a goalie. And I, I have noticed in all of these games that the catching skills, I have like a video all it's titled sick handles because it's unbelievable. The feeds and handles that kids will make if they're just given the chance to do it, the problem is in general field lacrosse, you just don't get that many chances right. to, to handle the ball in the middle. Like, you know, you might get one in a, in a practice, right. Whereas, you know, the Canadians are getting them, you know, all day long, they're constantly handling it in tight. And I think um, honestly, the Americans can learn this. You just have to be in that environment. I would agree. I think some of that may come on a little bit more. I mean, our shot clock is obviously a, a long, long shot clock compared to the 30 seconds that you play in the box. But with a 30 second shot clock, you got to throw the ball in there. You know, the, the, you know, you have to take the chance to jam it on the inside. And I think, you know, the end of a shot clock, you know, I'm, I'm much more a proponent of let's take a chance and, and jam the ball inside. Um, and maybe we make a play, then then roll it to the corner every time. You know, I mean, there is a time to, to roll it to the corner, but I think with five seconds to go and the ball's in Pat Spencer's stick, I'd rather take a chance of him jamming it into Kevin Lindley's left hand than have him yeah. roll the ball into the corner. And maybe we'll hit two out of 10, but that's two that we wouldn't have gotten if we roll the ball to the corner 10 times. And yeah, so totally. I think you're right. I think they're going to continue to make those plays if they are given the opportunity to do so. What's your take on deception and how you try to illustrate its importance to your teams? Uh, you know, whether it's deception in individual play or, or team play, you know, one of the things that you're trying to do uh, as, as an individual, you know, the simple faking, um, you know, and I think the fake passes, which I think you've always been a, a strong proponent of is, is a great way to, to influence the defenders, um, but even just the idea of looking like you're going one way and going another, I mean, cutting, I think is an area where, where deception can play a huge amount, you know, whether it's the use of your eyes or, or, you know, step in certain ways and, and, and then going back or, uh, you know, refusing picks is a, you know, a, yeah. an area of deception or, or setting a pick on one side and faking the other. So I think it, it's an important piece of how we, we grow. And I think it's the, you know, the, the other factor in, in shooting, um, you know, if, if guys can be deceptive, whether it's hiding the head of their stick or it's making that fake or, or shooting or, around a defender. Uh, I mean, I'm still very much a proponent of, you know, if I can shoot the ball good overhand to, to a good spot, most of the time I'm going to beat the goalie. Uh, and and I, I don't need to, to get a lot beyond that. But I there are times when there's good goalies that are set and you're going to need to use something different uh, besides just your your, your straight on technique. And then I think the deception applies into, you know, how are we playing uh, as a, as a unit, you know, and are we setting a dodge up on one side of the field with the idea that the real play is coming off the other side, you know, yeah. or, or are we trying to, to, to 
create the idea for the defense that we're doing this and 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 we're going to come back with something else. I think all those things, um, you know, you know, come into play. And so, uh, you know, certainly being bigger, stronger, faster, more skilled, um, you know, is is a a piece that we're all trying to work at. But but if you can add the deception component to that, then you're just going to maximize what you have. I, I, I totally agree. Although I, I think the interesting thing is, is that the paradigm is kind of like, let's practice all of these things and then let's add the deceptive component. And I think that's actually why we don't see as much deceptiveness as we would. And what I mean by that is if you teach everybody how to do everything and then say, okay, now let's like add our eyes looking away or add fakes or add all this because it's really kind of a part of a whole. And if you look at the Pat Spencer, it's definitely his basketball background that has allowed him to figure this out. But there's like a level of fluency and deception that's just built into like literally everything he's doing. It's not like an add-on, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I think a lot of it is, is not all conscious, you know, that, right. that it's by doing, you know? And right. it's like you're saying, getting out and playing in the, in the pickup things and, and experimenting with those things as you go along. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, you know, when Pat's carrying a ball back at X, he's always, you know, in his mind, okay, this time I'm going to look off that defender there and, and, and do it. It's not that rote or robotic, you know, right. it, he's just doing it. I just see the situation. And if I move my eyes this way, now that guy's going to, going to drift away and it's going to create that skip lane uh, to, to hit that guy in the backside. It's just fluency. And how many times would you see Pat Spencer do something new when you're like, I've never seen him do that before? Um, at least weekly. I mean, probably more frequently, right. you know, I mean, it, it, it was more like, I mean, if you could just see that, I remember talking to people that first fall that I was there, I, I was amazed at how good he was and, uh, and would just say, you just need to see the stuff that he can do in practice, you know, and uh, yeah. it just, when he, he decides to take over sometimes and it just was remarkable. It's, it's really remarkable when you think about that guy doing stuff that you've never seen before and maybe stuff that he'd never done before exactly. Because when you think about player development, you think about picking skills that you want to work on and repping them out and then going and executing them when really it can also work implicitly where you're just playing and things happen. And I think we've all done this as an athlete, like, wow, I've never done that before. That was actually kind of cool. Um, and I think you've, you know, it seems to me that one of your strengths as a coach is that you allow your players to do that. And you've alluded to this. You're not going to overcoach a Pat Spencer or a Steel Stanwick. Um, and it's really interesting to watch what happens when they're allowed to kind of play and figure things out. Yeah, and I think it becomes more collaborative, you know, between, you know, yeah. I always thought that as me as that, as an offensive coach working with, and, and particularly the elite attackman or two on each team, trying to, okay, what, what, what's going to work for us here? What, why is this going? What would you like us to see? You know, it's, it's a head coach asking a quarterback, you know, what plays do you feel comfortable with, you know, and, and where, where are we going to go with on, on that rather than always saying, this is what we're going to do. And you're going to fit into this, this model. I mean, cause a, a lot of those spectacular players that I've coached over the years, you know, and be the first to admit I'm, I'm much more lucky and have learned as much from them. Um, but, 
the, the thing that you get with those guys is, is they're going to do it differently too. And so you don't want to, you know, Matt Ward is not going to play the same way that Danny Gladding does, you know, and, and that's okay, you know, but figure out what, what's going to, going to go with them and, and meet them where they're going to be able to be most successful rather than say that, that our attackman in this system always does this. Yeah. So interesting. Um, last couple topics. Um, how has your philosophy on man up evolved over the course of time? Um, I think one of the things that you've found is what's a, what's a good shot to take on extra man versus what, what may not have been, um, you know, quite honestly, getting the ball inside was probably more of a, um, a priority in the past to now where I think guys that if they're open, you know, the guys that are playing on a, on a man up unit at this level, you would like to think if they're, they're open at 10 to 12 yards, that's, that's a, an awfully good opportunity for you, you know, right. and, um, you know, so don't, but I still would say that, that I would prefer passers to shooters on, on extra man. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think we want to work to get still, even though we're not going to get it inside all the time. Cause I think people uh, for a while had taken that away. Although I think it's starting to go back the other way, quite honestly, that, that now you see a lot of man down defenses cheat out of the inside um, a lot, a lot quicker because they have to get out to the shooters. You know, a guy can hit a 14 yarder and, and because they're doing that, it, it maybe opens things up. And so if you have a really good inside guy like our team with, with a, a Kevin Lindley, who's, you know, scores a hundred goals in his first two years. And um, you know, that's, a, that's someone that we do want to find a way to, to get the ball and, and, uh, and exploit. And I think the one thing that probably hasn't changed a lot is to, um, you know, get our guys comfortable playing out of a couple different formations um, and then find which ones are going to be best for them and then move into any plays and hopefully whatever play we run will end up in a formation that guys feel comfortable in and not be so set on, we got to get this right hand or the shot from this spot, you know, cause as you get scouted, as year goes on, people see it's coming. They're going to take that away. Yeah. Um, but six on five, being able to freelance six on five out of whatever set, you know, you're, you're good at, you should be able to find something um, that can be effective for you. One question I wanted to ask about man up philosophy was, no, there was a time when I think playing with an X guy in a one, three, two counting from behind was kind of the, the way everybody wanted to play. And then it really turned into a three, three, where you'd always put your best player top center of a three, three. And I feel like it's, um, it's the lost art a little bit of having that two handed guy at X. And I feel like at Virginia, you guys really played out of a one behind three, two a lot because you could, because you had steel standwicks and you had, right. you know, all you know, lightly Connor Gills and these guys were just incredible. Um, how do you look at those two formations and the advantages of what it can do for you? Yeah, those, those are, you know, like you said, those are probably the two that, that have coached the most over time. I mean, the three, three, you know, the, I think the, the simple things you're putting all, all six shooters in front of the cage um, and you, and you have that, that advantage that, that everybody's a threat. I, I really think if you're going to be good in the three, three, you better have a really good top center guy and a really good inside guy, um, yeah. you know, that, that can, uh, I think to a guy like Brian Carroll at Virginia that could yep. play in a high crease in there and, and you throw it into him from the top center and, and he could turn and, and fire and hit that, 
12 to 14 yarder pretty consistently. Um, but having having the ability to to get the ball in there in, in a three three is is I think um, a, a real important piece. And and the advantage, like I say, is that everybody's a shooter anytime they catch the ball, and that you know so you you're putting the D under pressure that way. I think the the advantage is the the one behind might have over the the three three is you're forcing, and this is even I think more so in a in a zone offense. But you know extra man is zone. Um, for the most part, uh, but putting that one behind, you're now making the defense to defend more area. Uh, you know, if the ball's always in front of the goal, they're they're never having to to guard that ten yards behind the cage, uh, and and they're also not having to turn their back. Yeah, you know, I think you know being able to throw the ball through X behind the goal forces every defender again. They're in a zone. They're all looking at the ball. That that's when I, I think different cuts can can become available. Um, and if you have the guy back there that, as you said, can, can throw the ball going toward either side, you know, I, I think that, that really helps if you got a, a, a righty lefty, as much as, you know, handedness isn't always that important. I think having an, an X guy that can, can throw the through ball with both hands really opens up the options when you're going to play in that, in that one, three, two from behind. No doubt. Hey, what's your take on, you know, I remember Brian Carroll, he was so good at catching and shooting, like you said, that 10 to 12 yard shot, which honestly is like, he was so good at it, but most of the time you just wouldn't really want that shot because it's, so, it's such a high degree of difficulty, right? right. Um, but you got to get it inside because when they're playing a five man, that's where the soft spot is, right? Exactly. So um, how much do you look to get it in and kick it out on what I would call wall pass? Yeah, we we, uh, we worked that more with, you know, like I mentioned, we have a really good inside player now, Kevin Lindley. And, uh, you know, Kevin will kick that out a little bit more if he's if he's up in the, the higher crease area, if, if he feels like it's maybe a little bit beyond the range. And so I think it, it depends on who that person on the inside is. I think some of it may depend on on the space uh, that they got in there. Uh, you, you hopefully get a little. Um, you know, communication going between that top center and that, that, that guy that's on the inside that if you, you know, if I throw the ball in there, you're open enough to turn and shoot. Um, yeah. And some of it may depend on, you know, the scouting during the week as to uh, how hard and fast the team was going to collapse on that guy. And, and maybe he does need to, to use that wall pass. I mean, I, if you are able to hit that wall pass, I think you really got to de-scrambling in a lot of trouble. I agree. You know? I, I, I kind of surprised that people don't do it more because I think it's, it's actually a lot easier to like kick it back out than it is to score it. Yeah. Because you can give it right back to the same guy, but if you get people collapsing and now all of a sudden the ball moves quickly, their approaches are just done. I mean, they're right. like, you can open up those, those skips to the low corners will be available. You know, if, if you, I mean, if you even just played catch with the same guy, you know, if you just, just didn't right. give and go and, uh, you know, they, they come crashing hard from those low corners. It's, it's going to open up that skip down there. No doubt. And I think you can get it in there. Obviously, if you get it in there from a low guy, you know, it's going to be a shot. But if you get it right. in there from a high corner shooter, it's a great time to just kick it back out to the other high corner or kick it down to the low guy. And um, I don't know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And I was curious about your opinions on that. I so, think it depends on that guy that's in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, last topic here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, recruiting in this uh, crazy era um, of no in-person evaluation. Right. Um, how has this being forced to do everything on film? How has it uh, 
change your opinion or not about um, evaluation of players? Um, I think you can find probably more out on film than we gave credit for previously, uh, but I still would would uh, say that that you're going to want to when the opportunity comes, when the world opens up. Uh, I don't think we're going to resort to just just looking at at the film, but I I think you're going to make more use of film than than have in the past. I mean, it yeah. used to be you'd, you'd maybe watch a highlight tape, and that would be enough to convince me that I need to go watch you play, you know, rather than I need to to absolutely re recruit you, um, you know. But the, the the side of that now too is you can, if all the summer events get filmed, you, you're going to have more coverage. Um, you know, just simple fact of the matter. There's so many things going on uh, that that there are some advantages to this. So now it's all on demand. So you don't have to like to the guy watch that a I want to watch play you might have found in that game. I don't really have to good. sit on the field for 40 minutes right, to see that, touch it three times. You know, I right. can certainly. That in, and, and now you mean video, there's just so much. You there's can't a bad cover game on this field. I don't care how hard you wait around for that game, whatever to be over to go watch the number of staff we have, number of kids, some number of of opportunities, let alone. You know, to watch the being film, able to um, do it. I mean, it used to be at a desk five and, years ago. If there was um, somebody, you know, uh, not going to a degree, rival school that you didn't know about, but it, I, I also find it's difficult it. to you know, sustain yeah, for an hour upon and, hour. And you just you know, got to be happy to. But I, I do to get, get the there ones that some your program right to it and are going to help you get. No doubt. I mean, it's just it's no different than if somebody asks you after a game, how do you think it? How do you think you guys played? It is. It's interesting to see. I think the hardest thing is no. That's and I've always said that that can't see. You maybe give a quick recap in a locker room after but don't like to make it long because i i you may not have seen it though the way that here that, that it actually happened i mean there's things no question that happened that on, you, you know when you're recruiting me kevin corner um, talking about this the other thing that's um, interesting is the whole live scouting there's advantages to you know? just get a feel for it and it's like I, that. I was, I was just gonna mention that you know that that scouting is is definitely different you know what we always thought you know and try not to make this whole thing about pat but you know if a team had not played against us before and you were just going to go off the film on Pat. Yeah. You we're going to probably underestimate, you know, size, speed, uh, quickness on it. And yeah. I think the same thing happens in, in the recruiting, but the, the live scouting for sure. Totally. Um, well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast to talk lacrosse with you. I always uh, enjoy talking lacrosse with you. And this time was just as fun as ever. Yeah, likewise. I always like the innovations you're coming up with, Jamie. Keep them coming. We'll do, and uh, let's keep in touch, eh? All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thank you.